Welcome to the Faith is Not Blind podcast. My name is Sarah Devonier, and I have the honor of being here with Fiona Givens today. And this is an interview I've been looking forward to for a long time, partly because I've admired Fiona's work uh, since I started reading it, and also because she has spoken a lot and thought a lot about the issue of doubt, which is a it's a hard issue. It's a lot of people aren't sure how to deal with it, and it's a privilege to talk yeah. to you about that today. You're lovely. Thank you. Would you start talking about, before we get into mm-hmm. the doubt and sort of the pros and cons of a life that allows doubt, will you talk about your childhood and your first experiences with simple childlike faith and, and how you would describe mm-hmm. that? Well, um, I was raised Catholic, and uh, I think that's an absolutely brilliant way to describe my life. It was simple childhood faith. Um, Catholicism is very beautiful. Um, it's aesthetically pleasing. I loved going to Mass. I loved the, um, the color of the vestments the priest donned. I loved the smell of incense in the, in the chapel. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely loved Catholicism. I, I'm not sure if um, I could say that I was ever converted. I was, I was educated as were my brothers in Catholic schools. So from the very beginning um, until my graduation. And, and for me, it was all girls schools. So it was Catholic schools and most of our teachers were um, women as well. So it, it was a really a very different sort of education experience. And you know, my, my faith just went along. Um, I loved it. You know, I went through sort of, um, uh, well, my brothers always say that I'm out with the fairies. That's generally how they describe <laughs> me. So, you know, there was a flirtation with becoming a nun because I thought that would be romantic. And then I thought about it a little bit more. And I thought, no, I don't think that would be romantic at all. Um, but, but, you know, just I, I was very comfortable in a religious, um, spiritual realm. And it sounds like it was sort of a tactile Mm-hmm. aesthetic experience that, that you were completely involved in it yeah which made coming to a mormon church absolutely <laughs> wow and i i mean i could understand <laughs> when we were in Wiesbaden, you know that the, the church was small and so it would be a room on the top floor but then when i you know entered the chapels and there is no beauty anywhere i have to say you know the temple saved me uh, you mm-hmm. know, because I went there and it's like, oh, my gosh, Mormons do do symbolism. Yes. You know, the, 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 ritual, the ritual of the yes. temple would have felt exactly. like coming home for yes, you. Yes, they definitely did. So with this background, with this Catholic um, ambiance that you loved, how did you find the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? And, and what appealed to you? Because like you said, it is so different. Right. It just in, in the way that right. we express beauty. Yeah. Well, I was on my gap here in Germany, um, in a little villa, a village called Eltvilla. And um, I was going to be reading it, um, German at the University of Wales, and I knew that it was going to be a very difficult course, so I wanted to ensure that my German at least was up to snuff. And um, I just happened to be um, st- teaching um, two boys English, well, ostensibly. I was supposed to be teaching them, but I wasn't interested in teaching English. One was uh, learning in English, one was 11, the other one was 14, and they had other things to do. But it was a massive house, and the the, the woman who um, ran the household um, was uh, a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. So we talked about God. I mean, some, you know, really, I was, you know, and that was sort of my turf anyway. I was very comfortable in yeah. it. And, 
love the sort of things she said. And then she invited me to church one day. And I said, sure. You know, I, I was very comfortable in Catholicism. I was not looking to move. And it was like, yes, I should, you know, being the member of the only true and living church, as were the oldest, so that gives us all the rights to say that. <laughs> um, I thought, well, yes, let us disperse the largesse and move into these other traditions and, and see um, how, can I, I, how I can expand my mind further. Anyway, we arrived. It was a, it was a small room on the second floor of the building. But as I stepped over the threshold, I felt something. That soon? Yeah, it was immediate. I just stepped over the threshold and I remember thinking, um, what was that? You know, I thought, well, that was a bit weird, odd. Never felt it before. And um, anything, uh, anyway, things went on swimmingly. The, um, you know, I liked the people um, who were there and, you know, who can resist men in uniform. <laughs> I mean, I was 19, so, they were, so were they. <laughs> the missionaries. Yeah, the missionaries. <laughs> can we, you can come and talk to me about anything you like. <laughs> I wasn't serious. I really was not thinking of converting. So, so you felt something. I felt but something. You just thought, I felt that something, but I didn't know what it was. It was like it was tangible, and I felt it. It was real, um, and it seemed to be coming outside. It was outside. It was something about the place that was electrified. Because I remember looking down at the threshold and thinking, hmm, oh, it looks like an ordinary threshold. <laughs> <laughs> so what moved that your willingness to talk to the missionaries about something other than the fact that they were in uniform? Well, no, <laughs> it was a terrible flirt. So you know, I remember when the missionaries came over, my friend said, Fiona, um, these are missionaries. I said, yes, yes, I know. They've explained that. No, you don't understand. These you are shouldn't be flirting with date. them. Yeah. They don't date. And I remember thinking, what a waste. <laughs> so, you know, to be honest, you know, it was, I think it was terribly flirtatious on my part. I have to say, I, I think I must have been the a mission presence worst nightmare. But, you know, the elders were desperate. This was Germany, you know, right. in the 70s. Right. There were very few people who were going to open the door and, and allow them in. But um, so, so the discussion was, you know, I don't think we ever had discussions, actually, but it went blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the discussion, both missionaries um, bore testimony of their love for me. And I thought that was extraordinary. It really caught me up short because this wasn't flirtation. There was nothing. It was a very different experience of love that I'd had from that, that gender. But it seemed to be real and compassionate and coming from a place um, with which I was completely unfamiliar. So, so this ch sort of agape, sort of charity. Yes, that's exactly what it was. Exactly. Right. That's exactly how I described and it. And so that, that, that feeling of this fraternal godlike love how did that lead you towards a conversion that well, you weren't expecting well no well one that was awesome so what that did was you know stop the um you know the uh, the playing that i was doing you know this ridiculous you know let's put fiona in the center sort of thing which i generally did i was head girl of my school too so it was really i was really pretty awful like Percy Weasley, except just a woman, <laughs> female head girl. We still like Percy, though. Uh, yeah, yeah, he came up. He, he came was, around. He came yeah, around. Right, so I yes. think you can say the same about me. He came around eventually, <laughs> but what a nightmare. Um, so we started having um, conversations. I wouldn't call them discussions, but um, that the Holy Spirit was incredibly strong. And, and as a Catholic um, schoolgirl, um, the Catholic Church was going ecumenical, so we'd 
It was always an excuse to get out of school. <laughs> but we'd, we'd go to the beach generally, and there were a group of us, and there was usually a priest involved, and then um, maybe a couple of nuns in attendance. But uh, maybe they put some people from another... I don't remember, but this was sort of... It was like a testimony meeting. We'd, you know, eat, you know, things and chat, whatever, and then we'd gather in a circle, and then essentially um, everyone would bear their testimonies. But I never could. Mm. I never could because I never felt... I never felt prompted to. I didn't know what to say. And I did try at one of these meetings, but I felt like such a fake. I just thought, oh, this is so wrong. It felt so wrong. It's like I just stopped and sat down. It's like everybody can see that you do not believe a thing you're saying, Fiona. You know, so, I, you know, I sat down. But um, the experiences that I was having during the conversion, I would call them Pentecostal, a lot of light and a lot of fire. Well, and it seems like at those initial experiences when you f didn't feel it, you didn't feel that fire, it was important to you to be sincere and to oh, be yes. genuine. You weren't going to say something you yes. didn't feel. But once you started to feel mm -hmm. something, did, did that change the way that you were able to articulate it and to be able to sort of bear testimony of these new ideas? That's such a good question. I'm actually not sure when I bore testimony. I have a feeling it was a very long time. Um, I, I don't think I was associating the two at all. It was just my experience. I, I do remember a particular moment when um, the missionaries had left me a tape of President Kimball because he was the prophet at the time. And um, it, was, it must have been a conference. To, it was a conference, I'm sure. But anyway, I started listening to I, I, I listen, I hear better in the dark or when my eyes are closed. Mm -hmm. So I turn the light out, I turn the tape on, and it took me a while to adjust myself to his voice. So I had to go through that, mm, it sounds like he's had throat surgery. I wonder yeah. if he's had throat cancer, this is interesting. So once I adapted myself to, to his voice and then settled in, I don't know what he said, I don't remember, I just remember a very strong declaration, you are listening to a prophet's voice. Wow. And that was extraordinary because prophets weren't even on my radar, you know, so it's like, Except wow. for Old Testament prophets, maybe. Right. And, but you know, we, we're not biblically literal yeah. um, Catholics in general. And so, you know, apart from the stories in the Old Testament, I, I really had very little right. connection. It was just this something, this is a prophet, but I did know um, my Bible well enough to know there were prophets in it. <laughs> <laughs> when you talk about this, I like how you said, the word Pentecostal experience, because I think a lot of us assume that if you have a Pentecostal-like experience, this the, the rush of the Spirit, mm -hmm. that that would just take you and carry you through for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And and so I, 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 I'm glad that you used that word, because a lot of us have experiences like that, mm -hmm. where, where we have felt the Spirit, we know it's the Spirit, we can testify of it, we maybe know we've heard a prophet's voice. Mm -hmm. And here's where the discussion of doubt would come in. Right. Because maybe it's not supposed to be Pentecost every day. Oh, I don't think what it do is. What do we do the day after Pentecost? No, I think that's such, I, I, because um, my conversion period was actually really painful. Um, once I, so it was very rapid and, um, and I should not have listened to the missionaries. They really encouraged me to call call my family and I thought no you know I'm three weeks in um, into this thing I mean this this will blow them out of the water 
um, although I felt it was really beautiful and they would, um, they would share in the beauty of the experience with me, there was also that, but they may not. Anyway, so I did. I called my mum. She was getting ready for a dinner party. Uh, the first thing out of her mouth was, what, Brigham Young and all those wives? Interestingly, they're not part of the um, lessons. <laughs> so I didn't know. I didn't know about Brigham Young So that Young was the first that you heard. <laughs> yeah, and it was like... What an introduction. Well, I, but it was so interesting. It was like, Mum, you've got something wrong. <laughs> no, my mum had it all right. Um, and then for my father, it's unfortunate. It's the late 70s and a, a number of us in this particular socioeconomic class were doing very strange things, like joining the Moonies, the Mormons, <laughs> or in my case, the Bader-Meinhof terrorist gang, which was still active in Frankfurt at the time. <laughs> and so, you know, my mum went cult, my dad went terrorist. <laughs> so I thought, oh, I need to go home. <laughs> I need to go home, we need to sort this out because uh, I'm not the person they're seeing, this monster they're seeing in their head. So. My baptism for was, for, was for that Saturday, and the elders were really concerned. I did not get baptized on my return, so they, they were right to be concerned. But I went home, and it was winter, and you know this is, this is my dramatic self, I'm sure, but every time I saw a cross, it was like, Calvary, Calvary, Calvary. It was just, it was just so painful. I was, obviously, my parents were shattered, and... Um, and, you know, the, 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 the scripture that prompted me to go was, you know, to be to honor your parents. And I felt that I had to do that. But being with them, I saw that this breach, if I were to become a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, this breach would not be healed oh. ever, at least not in my lifetime. And it has not. So I, I, I had to weigh. So when I ba went back, you know, the missionaries, you know, were suspecting that I wasn't going to be baptized. Um, my parents had put me in touch with a very close friend who um, was a priest. And I got this thing, you know, all the, all the things that, that sort of a, a timeline, a, um, a theological timeline of where the Catholic Church, other churches went wrong. And he went through this and why the Mormon church was true. And he said, Fiona, the dates are off. It, the, the dates aren't, aren't right. And it's like, okay, the whole, if the dates are off, what else is wrong? And so that got me thinking, okay, maybe, maybe this isn't, maybe this isn't what you thought it was, Fiona. So um, I got back, told them I wasn't get, um, being baptized and then just languished for about six months. I couldn't go back to the Catholic church, couldn't go back right. because I'd felt something and I didn't have the courage to go forward because I didn't want to lose my family and I knew that's what was going to happen. So finally, um, it was Shakespeare. It's always Shakespeare who rescues you at the end of the day. <laughs> Thank goodness. Yeah, above all to thine own self be true. Um, we had, um, that was Hamlet was our A-level text <laughs> the year I graduated. Um, and, and that was it really and I thought well, I don't have the courage to go on and I can't go back. So we um, arranged for the baptism to be around Easter, which was ra rather lovely. But to be honest, my baptism was an awful experience. Hmm. I, I was crying, um, goodness me. I couldn't leave the girls' bathroom. I was just sobbing. To be or not to be, mm -hmm. and you knew that 
once you took that step forward, you no couldn't back. go back. It was either to be or not to be. Yeah. There's Hamlet again. And I know. So finally, um, I got myself together enough and those poor people, I don't know how long they'd waited. Anyway, I was baptized and when I came out of the waters of baptism, I did feel calm. And I, I felt a calmness and it was a, a sort of a, an assurance that what I had done was not malevolent, was not evil, but was actually good. Mm. And um, so that was lovely, the calm. I really needed the calm. Um, I, I really don't remember much about the confirmation. It was just coming out of the waters. I just felt this calm. But I was a very wobbly convert. So I couldn't go back to England to go to university. My, my, my testimony just wasn't strong enough. Um, so whenever I go home to England, I'd come back in a complete mess. And I had this lovely home teacher who would uh, pick me up at the airport. I don't know how he knew I was coming. Pick me up at the airport. We'd stop at a pizza place, get a calzone, and then he'd drop me off at my flat. And by the time I got to my flat, I was working for the church office buildings in Frankfurt um, by this time. I was together, but this was it, you know, shroom, shroom, seismic shifts from one to the other. And so um, my boss has said, Fiona, why don't you apply to BYU? I mean, you obviously want to go to university, and I thought this would be fine. And um, so I did, but um, it's a long way from home. And uh, so the, the, you know, the division that it created in the family just grew expansive just because of the expanse of geography that existed between so my my brothers grew up and I grew up and you know we meet together but it's particularly uncomfortable from the young the brother just younger than myself my brother David is fine I said you know of course she was going to do something weird and join a cult <laughs> John how did you not see that <laughs> yeah, what, what you're making me think of with uh, I mean the combination of the holy and sort of the curse mm. of, and it seems like that's just, that's kind yeah. of how it is. I, I was, I want to make sure I get this right, so I'm going to read it. There's, there's this quote from Flannery O'Connor, mm. and I think she's talking about what you went through. I think there is no suffering greater than what is caused by the doubts of those who want to believe. I know what torment this is, but I can only see it in myself anyway, as the process by which faith is deepened. A faith that just accepts as a child's faith and all right for children. But eventually you have to grow religiously as every other way, though some never do. What people don't realize is how much religion costs. They think faith is a big electric blanket when of course it is the cross. Right. And I'm thinking about your nostalgia as you, as you were moving forward to your baptism, you'd see the cross and mm -hmm. be nostalgic for it. What does, that, what does the cross symbolize for you now in terms of what the price that you've had to pay mm -hmm. for your faith? It's so interesting. Um, the cross has been such a significant part of my life. I remember when I was told, and I wore it, and, and I wear it now. Um, actually, I, I designed my own. I call it 
the Mormon cross. It's the cross and then it's got an Easter lily on it. But I remember being challenged all the time for the cross. I couldn't understand what is it with Mormons and their objection to the cross. <laughs> um, I can understand the objections to the crucifix, walking around wearing a crucifix. But the cross is the disembodied, you know, it's a, there is no body on the cross. It's, it's the a sign symbol. of, the, yeah, yeah. It's of, of resurrection. Yeah. Um, so that was that was difficult for me why, uh, for a while. So the cross has been central um, all the way through, central to my life. I, I remember um, um, I remember Good Fridays very well. I remember um, going to church with my mum. I remember feeling the pain. It's like Good Friday had you felt the weight, the weight of um, of the suffering on the cross. Um, for me, you know, in, in, in Gethsemane and, and, and Mormonism shifts, um, and I think not incorrectly, um, suffering to Gethsemane, because I think that that really was when I um, just analyzing, I'm looking at my children here and a lot of the lot of questions, not only my children have, but many LDS have. Is why does God not answer our questions? If yeah. we are doing all of these things, why is my mother not healed? Why, you know, why, why, why? Um, and, and I've real, realized through time that um, God can't always yeah. answer those questions in the way we are. So for me, Gethsemane is that place where um, Christ asks the question and it's not rhetorical. Right. Can you please take this from me? Because... I can't do this. Well, yeah. I mean, it, the, the, the horror and the terror of the situations in the pre-existence, it was sort of hypothetical. But now he's there, but God cannot. God cannot take, kind of ask the question the way, the way in which Christ is answering it. And when we talk about that, that Good Friday moment, mm -hmm. the, the, when we're on our cross and we have our doubts, mm -hmm. If you're saying that God can't take us take it from us, and maybe He wouldn't, and maybe He shouldn't, how do you feel like those Good Friday moments are good for us? Then how have they been good for you? Well, um, they're essential for me. It's just that we need to expand our minds in order to be able to tune our our um, ability to hear God answering questions. Um, and I, I think that's really beautiful because God is multilingual. And um, especially when we're in the, those areas of doubt, um, my doubt, a huge uh, doubt, um, as for many women, um, was polygamy. And, um, and, and I struggled with it for many, many years. Um, and uh, I, I think people think that doubt needs to be resolved immediately uh, because it's incredibly painful. And it was very painful, and it wasn't until actually researching for the Christ who heals yeah. that pushed me, pushed me right back into the early Christian texts. Um, when I was reading um, early church fathers like Irenaeus, Ignatius, um, Gregory of Nyssa, and as I read their writing, some of it was almost verbatim Joseph. It was extraordinary. I can say with all of my conviction that Joseph Smith was channeling revelatory power. And that, that, that's a really fine distinction you're able to make. 
if there are people who have doubts and, and they can't navigate that, talk us through how you mm. navigate that. Because I think for some people, like yeah. we said, to be or not to be, either Joseph was a prophet or he wasn't, right. and I don't know how to reconcile this. So talk about how yeah. you're, you're using the space, what we're talking about, the space between Good Friday and Resurrection mm -hmm. Sunday. There's some space, there okay. are some days. So how mm -hmm. do you use that time mm -hmm. to get to a place where you feel okay about something that complex? Um, that's a brilliant question. And I think for everyone, it's, it's, it's going to be slightly different. My paradigm is different. And I think this actually helps me. Um, most of my friends grew up in the Mormon tradition where, um, where history was actually part of theology. Right. Uh, and so, you know, whatever you said with the history, whatever said Joseph Smith, they had to mesh. So when you find they don't mesh anymore, then everything, you, you, you're, it's, it's a much more painful place than I was. Interesting. Because of my background, because I was educated in an all-girls environment with women, our view of men was, you know, some of them can dance and occasionally some of them can add something that's you know, intelligent to the conversation. That was it. So, I, so as far as men in my life, but with, with, with the Mormon community, they're growing up with priesthood. And although we had priests, it was the nuns, mm -hmm. really, in the convent. They were our leaders. They were our role models. You know, the priests came in once a week um, to, you know, to do mass. That was about it. But otherwise had no role. But in Mormonism, priesthood has a really, really, really strong role. Yes, and, um, and and I think this is difficult when you have um, sort of a direct, very declarative statement. Joseph Smith was not only a prophet; he's completely unflawed. And so when you when you and, and and Joseph himself was so you know I'm not I I have weaknesses. I wish people would stop scribbling down everything I'm saying as though what I'm saying is coming. From God, I, I am not vouchsafed the same liberty that every other American has of just opening my mouth and speaking because people will scribble it down and say, this is the word of the Lord. And so our, our tech, Joseph himself and our texts do, but the way I, we were people like me were raised in the church, you could not divorce the one from the other and they have to be divorced. And, and so you would say if someone's going through doubts with, especially with church history, mm -hmm. To be able to say you need to you need to separate those and study them. I think it's so interesting that your answer sort of came through studying ancient texts. Right. And and what would you recommend to people who maybe have not had that experience of trying to separate different doctrines, separate the history from the prophet? How would you recommend that they do that? Well, first of all. Um safe people, people who are not going to freak out when you say, I, I don't believe this anymore, or I, I just can't, you know, it's because what, once you start articulating that you, and you're articulating it into um, a company, um, so we're all, we're all wobbling. I mean, the ground beneath us is shaking. So, and, and I, you know, I'd say, yeah, you know, read the Joseph Smith papers. They fill a, a bookshelf. I mean, they're, I mean, they're brilliant, but you know, you, this is a very emotional thing for you. Yeah. So it, the, the, you need to find a safe place and safe people 
with whom you can articulate everything and not have anybody come back to you and say, ooh, ah. Well, know. and to, I, there are some people who are going through doubts who don't recognize, like the quote from Flannery O'Connor says, mm -hmm. what a torment it is. It is. So safe people are people with whom you can say, this is a torment. This right. is really difficult. Right. Once you find those safe people, how, how you, you mentioned the word paradigm and you said that you have a paradigm that, that can work with, with this kind of nuance. How do you think people could shift their paradigms so that they can mm -hmm. find those safe people, realize it, it, there might be some torment, they might, they might be wobbly, then how could they move forward with a new paradigm? Well, I, I, think, I think you're creating the new paradigm yourself by the question. Mm. Um, we are not used to, as a people, we're not used to cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Um, it's like everything is great. If you keep the commandments and do all of these things, everything is going to be rosy. Certainty, everything is absolute. Yeah. Absolutely. And so when that comes crashing and burning, you really don't have anything to hold on to. So I think if we can, um, you know, like, like Flannery O'Connor, not only is cognitive dissonance uncomfortable, it can be excruciatingly, excruciatingly painful. But it's rather like Gethsemane. It's a place we have to stay for a while mm. until that angel comes. And that angel will come. Um, it, it, it may come in, you know, a book. Someone says, you know, you, you said you, we, you know, we might find this interesting or so all, so all sorts of different ways, but, but not to shut our hearts and minds down because of our fear and fear will do that um, to not accept, not be able to accept the, the, the answers that are coming um, through our friends because they will come through our friends. I, I really do um, agree with President Kimball when he said the people who are most likely to influence are those us um, who are being sent to us are those in our immediate vicinity, in our yeah. families, in our in our immediate. They don't have to come from far away. Um, this isn't a case of telescopic philanthropy. <laughs> but, but I really do believe that um, if we can help people to realize this is okay, this is okay. And if you can possibly do this with a friend, do it. Um, and for me, that's why the baptism, our baptismal covenants resonate so powerfully with me because as far as I know, we are the only Christian tradition um, in which covenants are articulated in such a way as to help us to be co-healers with Christ. So we have this lovely um, expression, saviors on Mount Zion, and that's generally associated with temples, which is perfectly fine. But there is this other way in which we have been invited to be saviors, I would say collaborators, co-healers with Christ and that is in the baptismal covenants. I think they were articulated earlier in the church, and I think it would be fabulous if they were articulated again. There's power when you speak words into the air. So you have um, somebody standing at the water, uh, waters of baptism, and I covenant with you that I will carry your burdens to the community, whoever's in the community standing at the baptismal font, font with you. I covenant with you that I will mourn with you when you mourn. I covenant with you that I will comfort you when you stand in need of comfort. Those are powerful covenants. 
And, and what is more extraordinary for me is that they are ratified by the presence of each member of the Godhead. So you have the God who carries our burdens all the way through his life. And this is so beautifully articulated in Alma 7. Um, all the way through his life into Gethsemane and onto Golgotha is God the Christ. The God who mourns with us when we mourn is the God of Enoch and the God of Jacob 5. Um, God the Father, and then the God who comforts us when we stand in need of comfort is God the Holy Spirit. It is extraordinary. And I feel if we understood the power and the efficacy of these commandments, that would give us all room for those of us struggling with our faith in, in any shape or form, or um, that th this is something they can still do. This is something they can still do that they can reach out and help friends. Um, you know, as, as King Benjamin said, if you are in the service, if you're ministering to your fellow man, that is how you worship God. And so for those of us who are hanging in there where this is really, really difficult, can we make it to one more church meeting <laughs> where I am very likely going to be horribly offended or wounded by something that is spoken? Can I make it there at least just to participate in the sacrament? And then in, my, in our minds, renew those covenants and then go out with just a greater desire to minister. That in and of itself can strengthen us and help us through that long, painful dark yeah. that Flannery O'Connor is talking about. Yeah. And whether it's in our own, but generally it will be in the fellowship of other people who are also engaged in that yeah, work. I love thinking of that, uh, the fellowship of doubt. Mm. <laughs> and that in that fellowship, if we understand the Godhead and the three different roles and that we should try and be like each right. of those entities and as that, we yeah, minister exactly. and, and yeah. know them. And, and know that each of those entities is sanctifying your ministry. Whenever you comfort that is sanctified by the Holy Spirit, whenever you mourn, and it may just be sitting with a friend and not saying anything at all, um, but being prompted by the Holy Spirit. It, it's just so beautiful when, when we allow the Godhead to work in our lives in these capacities, they strengthen us in ways that, um, that surprise us. And so finally we think, okay, all right, so this really bothers me in church history or this really bothers me, um, what the prophet just said or whatever it is. But because of this experience, I can, I can hold it. And so you start learning to be, whole, be able to hold this and hold this and this will strengthen and increase. And this is what is the most important thing, is living a life of sanctification and holiness with the Godhead, being asked to collaborate with the Godhead in this incredible mission. And then this will resolve and take care of itself, or maybe it won't, but at least we'll be able to live with it. So the pain of my family, that will never be resolved. I will always have that pain. But um, the covenants that I have made, um, the, 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 the insights that I have received about the restored gospel of Jesus Christ that have enabled me, given me the texts, given me the place in my mind and heart 
to write these books with my husband, that's extraordinary. It's like, you know, I, I challenge anybody, find me a God that is more deserving of worship than this God. You know, find me a Christ who, um, who would choose to suffer in the most unspeakable way and live on this earth that he might have empathy with us, that he might understand. And at the end of the day, not only that, but heal us. That's extraordinary that we can be healed from our injuries. And, um, and I think with a Christ who heals, it was a deliberate movement from sin to woundedness because we felt there is val validation in our restoration scriptures yes. to move from sin to woundedness. So, um, and it's particularly apparent in um, 1 Nephi 13, 32, in the 1830 version. And it's all about the injury to us because of the loss and plain and precious things from the biblical text. And Heavenly Mother, of course, is one of them. Um, but, but to understand that we are wounded and then to understand that sodzo can be translated as saved or healed. Because, you know, as you know, um, Greek is such a beautiful, expansive language. But of course, the Protestants in the court of King James I of England, who was terrified of meeting the same fate his mother was and who was very Catholic, but he was in Protestant England now. So it was like, I'm not, I'm not interfering with this. And so they would use um, a much more malevolent, well, it's, that's a harsh term, but they would use a translation that would emphasize sin and salvation for a few rather than healing, healing yeah. for everyone. Yeah. And how beautiful to think that the restoration of the gospel is what can restore us. Yes. That's, that's what not only saves us, but yeah. heals us. And yeah. I, I appreciate you sharing your oh. journey and that, mm. that to be healed doesn't mean that everything has been taken care of, but no. that it's a process. And right. thank you for personifying that for oh. us today. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I'm very grateful. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really, this has been an honor for me. Thank you. Mm.